Welcome back to Mathetai. We're glad you're here joining us again as we are continuing on through the book of Luke. Uh, we've uh, entered into chapter 2. We're looking at the birth narratives regarding John and Jesus. We saw in chapter 1, Luke's intention in writing this gospel was that we would uh, have certainty regarding these things. So he's wanting to give us confirmation and certainty into the historic aspects of the birth of Jesus and who he is so that our faith can be developed and grow in that. And so we're hoping that you're finding that as we're exploring these birth accounts, looking at the historical nature of these accounts, and at the message of the angel to Zechariah, and then Zechariah sharing that with Elizabeth, and we see their faith and their response and the signs and symbols that God uh, performed in their life uh, regarding their son, John. And then the same thing for Mary, as we see her faith in the message from the angel there in chapter one, and how God is bringing that about um, to bring the Messiah into the world. And we saw the birth of John at the end of chapter one, and the fulfillment of all of those uh, prophecies earlier in the chapter and how John would be the fulfillment of that Malachi prophecy of the one coming before the Lord. Uh, and now as we've gotten into chapter 2, we looked at verses 1 through 7 last time to put the birth of Jesus in its historical context during the reign of Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, uh, at a time when Quirinius was in some sort of a leadership uh, there over Judea. <clears throat> and the census that was uh, enacted caused them to travel from their home in Nazareth south about 90 miles to Jerusalem, so that, or to Bethlehem, excuse me, so that they could be counted. And that's where we find Jesus being in the right place at the right time to fulfill the prophecies of Micah 5.2, being born in Bethlehem, and to bring about uh, that setting. And so we, we noted a lot about the historical nature of that in the first seven verses. I encourage you to go back to the last episode if you're interested in that, if you did not check that out, and uh, see what uh, the the setting is laid out for the birth of Jesus. As we continue today, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20, where we see now uh, it's the same night, probably, perhaps the next day at best, um, that the uh, angel is going to go and visit shepherds now. And this is a, a story we're all familiar with because of our nativity scenes, our Christmas time celebrations. We're going to look in depth at what this really means, what the song of the angels is really about, and hopefully it's going to give a greater depth to our understanding and appreciation of the birth of this young child and what we truly celebrate at Christmas time, that it is truly a magnificent thing. Now, before we get into all of that, I want to make a couple notes about the date. Uh, we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. That's a date that's been assigned. Uh, whether that is the actual date or not, no one can tell. Um, there are those who argue that it is a possible date. Um, it's not unlikely that sheep would be tended year-round and that they would be out in the folds uh, at nighttime, as we're going to see here in these passages here, even in those winter months, um, <clears throat> we're going to see that travel is possible around that time as well, uh, as there are ancient document recordings and, and even modern day recordings of people traveling um, uh, during those months when it traditionally was thought that travel was impossible because of rains and weather and that sort of a thing. So it's not impossible that this would occur during December 25th in that season. Uh, many people try to put it more towards the spring or even summer uh, when it would have been more likely. The weather would have been uh, more uh, possible for travel, would have been better uh, for all of that and, and so on. So the dating of it really doesn't matter. Uh, that December 25th, most people attach it to the Roman uh, celebration of Saturnalia, thinking that perhaps Constantine tried to meld the, the Roman celebration with the Christian celebration to put a Christian spin on everything. 
And so it's the celebration and, and the Roman feast there of the new year coming, the the day, the darkness of the days ending and the brightness of the sun returning, the days getting longer. It's that winter solstice time. And so perhaps there's some connection to that, but either way, that's, a, that's another uh, story for another time. We want to dig into the account of what happened. Whatever time of year it was, we're going to look at what events occurred and what the depth was to that. So Again, thanks for joining us here on Mathetai, and I hope you're blessed by this. I hope it enriches your understanding of our Christian faith and our Messiah. So let's read, first of all, chapter 2 of the book of Luke, verses 8 through 20. <coughs> there it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen as it had been told them. Now, what we see here is we see another vision of an angel. We saw this several times in chapter 1 with uh, Zechariah in the temple and then with Mary uh, there as she was betrothed to Joseph. Uh, and so the angel arrives and we see a, a similar uh, circumstance here. We see the reaction of those to whom the angel appears, that reaction of fear. And we see the announcement of a birth, just as with Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah, as well as with Mary. And then we see a sign given by which they can know the truthfulness of the angel's proclamation. So it's a similar encounter as what we've seen in chapter 1, at least two times over there. Now, there's something different about this announcement, however. In chapter 1, the announcements to Zechariah uh, and Elizabeth, uh, secondarily there, and to Mary, were that something is going to happen in the future. This thing is going to take place, and I'm going to give you a sign now that testifies of the truthfulness of what is about to happen. In this pronouncement here in chapter 2 to the shepherds, the angel comes and says that there's something that's occurred this very day. It's already happened. And in order for you to identify what it is and identify the proper circumstance of this, we're going to give you a sign that you can distinguish this from other events that are similar to this. And so it's not a future fulfillment, it's a present fulfillment. Also, another difference here is that we have for the first time outsiders being invited into the story. In chapter one, we're dealing with the immediate families, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you know, with the birth of John, and then Mary and Joseph with the birth of Jesus. Even if you look in uh, Matthew's account in chapter two, the announcement given to Joseph uh, about the birth of this child. And so the angel appears to those individuals, but it's all immediate family. It's all direct relation. And for the first time here, we have outsiders, not just outsiders from the family, but outsiders from the 
the common structure of Israeli society. And so these were not central figures in Israel. So they weren't central Jewish biblical characters. They were people that would live out in the hillsides and, and have life apart from modern society. So we've got outsiders now being invited in to this story for the first time. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty radical announcement there. And the focus of this announcement is interesting. It's, it's the focus on the glory of God is demonstrated through this gift that he has given and through the station, the proper place of this child. Uh, the name of this child has not formally been given yet. That's going to occur as we look next week, as we look at the naming and the presentation of Jesus at the temple. But the name is only known so far as we know to Joseph and probably Mary at this time. And so no one else knows the name of this child, but yet the child is, is garnering attention from heaven and from earth itself. And so these shepherds are brought in to look at this child who the only description we have in these verses are the station that this child will hold. So it's going to be a significant indicator of who this child is, and it's going to lay the foundation for our understanding of the mission and work of Jesus as he grows older throughout the gospel here. So let's dig into some of these passages and, and see what we have here. In verse 8, we see uh, the introduction to the shepherds. We've got <clears throat> verse 8 telling us that in the same region, there are these shepherds. And so uh, some translations try to put the shepherds closer into Bethlehem, that they're around the same vicinity. Uh, the idea is that they're in the region, they're in the area, probably the hillsides around the community in the larger scope of that territory. They weren't necessarily nearby, and as we're going to see towards the end of this section, they probably traveled some distance to go and visit this child after, after the revelation came to them. Uh, so they aren't next door. They're not just on the outskirts of town. They're out in the hillsides, out in the countryside, and it will take them some time to travel back in. So they're in the surrounding regions around Bethlehem, in the hill areas, and they're shepherds out in the field. Now, shepherds, if you've heard these uh, teachings and, and those before, they, they tend to talk about shepherds as being lowly outcasts, considered unclean by Israel. And that's a little bit of a, dr a drastic uh, picturing of them. Now, certainly shepherds are considered peasants. They're lower on the social scale. They're not even up at the place of a merchant or aristocrat or a, uh, you know, a, per a landowner in any of the senses. Most shepherds would have probably been hired by someone else to watch their flocks. Uh, they might possibly have their own flocks, but they're going to travel through public places to feed them because they don't have significant land of their own. To own land at that time was to have wealth. And most shepherds were not wealth attainers. They weren't merchants in the sense because they were constantly in the fields rather than at home honing a craft. They weren't making things because they were constantly watching the sheep. Uh, also that they uh, were not able to engage in agriculture because they didn't own land and they weren't able to settle in the land to care for the fields. So because they're out wandering the hillsides with their sheep, caring for their sheep, their sheep become their primary investment and therefore they don't have other things that would attain to wealth in that culture. And so they would have been lower on the social scale, um, again, probably hired by other people to care for their sheep while they stay home and are merchants and agricultural uh, landowners. Um, and, and so they, they don't have a high social status, but they, they're not as despised as we think. We often think of, uh, you know, what a shepherd's job is. It's to tend the sheep and care for them. And when we think about that, we need to associate that with the temple. What is necessary in the temple? Uh, 
In order to have the sacrifices proposed by Moses under the law, you have to have sheep, you have to have lambs, and who tends them is the shepherds. So why would the Israelites, why would the Jews treat shepherds with such contempt to treat them as unclean and unfaithful and outcasts? These were certainly important members of society for the sole purpose of providing sheep for sacrifice. They were essential in the function of the temple. So even though they were lower class citizens, they would not have been outcasts. They would not have been <clears throat> cast away in the same way we often tend to think of that. So um, we can also look back at biblical history and think of the associations of shepherds with such great people in the past. Think of Moses. Moses, when he left Egypt, he went to uh, his father-in-law and he was a shepherd there for his father-in-law for those 40 years, his training in the wilderness. And then we think back to the greatest king. And as we've been looking through chapter one and chapter two at the beginnings here, Jesus is consistently identified and associated back with his father, David, uh, King David himself. And so David was a shepherd and David uh, would have tended the flocks and would have uh, lived out in the same community. So to call a shepherd an unclean, unfaithful individual was to look back at these great heroes of the faith and say the same things about them. So that certainly wasn't their intention. So uh, although they weren't rich, they weren't uh, even socially graceful, spending all their time out with the flocks and not so much in society as a whole. They didn't have personal ownerships. They would have not have been despised at such a low level as many would look at them. And so shepherds... Uh, uh, were not the, the ones that you would expect to be the most holy, the most righteous, the most knowledgeable of scripture. Uh, they would have had a certain function, um, but they would have left it at that. And we see what these shepherds are doing. They're out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So this could have been several flocks that have come together to, to bed down together tonight and the shepherds to support one another. It could have been a single flock with multiple people helping watching it. And the idea is that over at nighttime, they would uh, bring all of the sheep into a safe fold somewhere uh, to prevent uh, animals or, or predators from getting in uh, and also to keep the, the sheep from wandering off. And it would allow the shepherds to get some sleep, get some rest. Uh, one of them or two of them would stay awake and keep an eye out over the flock while the others slept. And then they would switch shifts, if you will, and take turns watching over the sheep at nighttime uh, while they all rested. And so that's kind of the setting. They're out there. It's the middle of the night. They're doing their daily business, not expecting anything nor, uh, out of the ordinary. They're away from society. They're on their own in the peaceful wilderness. And something happens that is going to change their world. <laughs> and so in verse 9, we see it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them. This is a, a, a surprise appearance. Notice there's no approach of the angel. There's no slow buildup. It's, it's a sudden appearance. The angel comes out of nowhere. Now, we don't know who this angel is. He's simply called an angel of the Lord. Uh, the angel of the Lord uh, just appears. He's un unidentified. Perhaps this is Gabriel. Uh, we've seen in the past uh, chapter in chapter one that it's Gabriel making the announcements to Zechariah and to Mary. And so perhaps Gabriel is continuing to make the announcement, but we don't know. Uh, we have no idea. But what we do know is what this angel brings with him is he brings the glory of the Lord with him. Because it says there in verse 8, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, this idea is that there's a almost a halo of light. There's a, a, a luminescence coming from the scene here that would have turned nighttime into day. 
Uh, and it's the same word when it talks about the, the, the glory of the Lord shining around them. It's the same word that Paul uses in Acts chapter 26, verse 13, where he's describing his Damascus road appearance, where he gets knocked off his horse and a bright light shines from heaven. It's the exact same word uh, that Luke uses in Acts 26. So we've got the glory of God, the, the presence of God filling this area. And you can think back to other descriptions of the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 6 is one of my favorite where the, the train of the robe of God fills the temple with glory, Isaiah says there in, in that hymn, if you will. <clears throat> and so we've got this glory being manifested similar to the Old Testament. It, it, it's a reactive glory here in chapter 2, verse 9 that causes a result from these individuals that he appears to. And it says that the result, the Lord, uh, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And so fear is that natural response to an angel. When we look at historical artwork about these settings and we look at uh, the great Renaissance painters and the early painters that were trying to put this into a pictorial form for us, they tend to paint these angels as soft and gentle and chubby with little wings and, you know, these sort of things. And we have the, the picture of a Charmin baby, you know, a soft, uh, you know, angel sitting on a cloud with a harp. That's not the angels. The angels were mighty and massive and powerful. In a Jewish mind, angels were fearsome uh, warriors and creatures to be honored and respected. And so an angel was no joke. And so for an angel to appear, just the angel alone would strike fear in the heart of these people. But then for the glory of the Lord to appear... Think back about Moses asking, Lord, let me see your glory. And God says, no, you know, in Exodus 33, no one can see my glory and live. And so Moses gets hidden in the cleft of the rock. The Lord causes his glory to pass by him while he hides Moses. And then what Moses is able to do is see just kind of the, the trail of his glory, the leftovers, if you will. And that alone is enough to, uh, you know, set Moses off for, for the rest of his life. It's, it's a powerful glory. So the glory of the Lord appears here and it becomes a magnificent scene and it fills them with fear. In the Greek, the way this reads <coughs> is quite instructive. It reads phobeo, phobos, megas. And what that means, phobeo is a verb. It means just causing a, a fear that would cause one to flee. It's the action of fleeing in terror. It's, it's, it's that action word, the phobio there. So they had a phobio, they had a, a, a physical response that caused some return and, and, and running away, or, or they wanted to flee. And it's a fear that's overcoming you, that, that freezes you or causes that fight or flight response. And so that's the verb sense of it. And then phobos is a noun form of fear. So they had a, a, a verb uh, used to describe their fear that they were frozen or that they wanted to flee. They wanted to respond and, and do some action because of the fear, noun, the, 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 the experience of something going on there. And then megas is, is where we get our word mega from. It, it, it's, it's describing, uh, it's an adjective that speaks of how great the terror was. This was mega fear. This was massive fear. It could also be translated, they feared with great fear. <laughs> This is not just a normal night in the field for them. This was not some wild animal coming by, not some random event occurring. This was something above and beyond the normal that caused significant fear, a mega fear in these guys. And so these shepherds go from this intense, uh, uh, peaceful setting, uh, a relaxed setting. Everybody's bedded down for the night. They think the night's over and they can finally get some rest. And all of a sudden this event occurs and it strikes terror into the heart of these individuals.
And then it's interesting how this is described there that, that this seems to reflect back to Zechariah's song in chapter 1. In the last line of Zechariah's song, in verse 79, he says that, that the, the mercy, or let's go back to verse 78 for context, that the mercy, tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And we talked about that being uh, God bringing his light forth into the world, and he's going to bring uh, his, his light onto us. And then verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so it's interesting how this event with the shepherds can call to mind those last couple lines of Zechariah's song, because here you have individuals who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Uh, there are some uh, indicators that the shadow of death would be the valleyways in between uh, Jerusalem and the hillsides. And so those who sit in there, that's where they would uh, take the outcasts from the city. That's where uh, in history that there would be uh, sacrifices to Molech and these sort of things. So those were considered the shadow of death. In Psalm 23, it says, he says, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death. And so the idea is that these are valleys that signify death and destruction to the people. And he says, there's people that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And this is exactly where these shepherds would find themselves. They're in the unknown, the wild, chaotic uh, outdoors. Uh, they're in the darkness. They have maybe a simple uh, lantern for a light, but they don't have great light to see very much. And God says, I'm going to give light to those who sit in darkness. And here, in a very literal sense, we have those sitting in darkness and a great light shines to them and the brilliance of the Lord surrounds them. And so we have a literal fulfillment there that the figurative fulfillment would come later that all of those of the world, the lost sinners of the world that have rejected God and are at enmity with God are sitting in darkness and God brings light to them in the same way so that we can see our condition and see where we're at. So uh, perhaps a dual fulfillment there, but interesting to connect uh, the narrative that Luke is giving here. He's bringing all of these stories into a single picture of God's plan and intention in bringing forth his son into the world. Now, the angel speaks first. The angel says there in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And so, uh, this the first thing the angel says is the common thing because it, it, it tells us about the response of the people. He says, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be stricken with terror because there's something good coming. Don't be frightened, but trade your fear for this joy. I bring you a message of joy. So the, the term for joy that's given there, he says you, you had a great fear back in verse 9, but now I bring you a message of great joy. And it's the same word, megas kara, kara speaking of joy. Uh, and so it's the grace of God being extended there, bringing the joy to the people. So the joy is possible uh, to alleviate our fear because of the message that the angels bring here. So let's take some time and look at what this message is. So I'm bringing you good news. Uh, the word there is, is from the root word of evangel. We get our word evangelism, uh, eulogia. Uh, it's a, a testimony of what is happening there. So I'm bringing you good news. And so uh, I'm bringing you glad tidings. This angel is not appearing in judgment. We do see that in the Old Testament times that the angels as messengers of God will bring the judgment of God or uh, a message from God of wrath. 
Uh, this angel says, that's not my intention here, but I'm bringing you a message that's good, that's desirable, it's glad tidings to you, and you should receive this with great joy. Now, this, this term that's used here would have connected the Greek or Roman to this gospel message here. Uh, previously, we were seeing a lot of the association of Christ with the house of David, a lot of Jewish overtones referring back to Old Testament fulfillment of the, uh, of the, the liberation of Israel uh, from captivity, from uh, the society around them and setting up of the kingdom. Uh, we've been seeing that so far. Even back into Matthew, we see that Jesus is coming to be the great king of the kingdom. But this term evangel would have been used uh, in a secular sense that all of the Greek and Roman culture would have understood. Uh, when it was used there, it would speak of victorious battles that the emperor had engaged in and won. That they now as they return back on bringing the good news from the battlefront. And it would also speak of the imperial cult of Caesar worship. And so the good news is that you have a Caesar that is victorious in battle, bringing uh, more goods and resources and greater peace to our community that we can live and flourish and enjoy life in. And so that term evangel would have had that connotation in the mind of a Greek and Roman Believers. So these early believers here that would have been reading Luke and reading this would have fully understood this term evangel as being good news. And so it would speak of the greatness of their leader, the victorious campaigns, the security, the dominion that the kingdom would have brought about, and it would have been a great comfort and encouragement to the people. And so for the Greek, it would have had that context. And for the Jew, it would have had another context as well. A Jew uh, would have been hearkened back to Isaiah chapter 40 through 66, that whole section of scripture there, where the good news is defined in the Old Testament. And it, and it speaks in chapter 40, verse 9 of the coming of God. The good news starts with the fact that God is going to come and be on your side. And not only is God going to come, as chapter 40 of Isaiah says, that God is bringing salvation and a reign of peace and justice in a world that's filled with war and conflict and injustice. God is going to come and save us from that and bring his reign of peace and justice. You can find that in Isaiah 52 verse 7 speaks a bit about that. But again, that whole section in there is speaking about God coming, dwelling with us and bringing peace and justice for our lives. And it's not only for the Jew in that case, it's not only for those who are around the temple, but as we continue on in Isaiah up through chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, we see that this is for the outcast as well as for the Jew. So all of the people are able to live under the salvation of God. We're all united in that. And so uh, the message there um, would have been a uh, an affront to the message about the Roman Caesars and their greatness and their peace that they would have brought. And so those messages from the Greek and Roman mind that would elevate Caesar Augustus, who we just learned about a few verses earlier, uh, and, and praise him for the peace that he brings and the good tidings of victorious battles and the peace, the Pax Romana that he brought about, would have been overshadowed by the peace and justice that God brings as he comes to dwell with his people. So we have truly good news, he says. Good news comes to us, and it's a kingdom of peace and justice. And that's where the Jewish mind would have gone, and the, the Greek and Roman mind would have gone to a kingdom as well that would have been established in these things. And so the very fact that this message is delivered to these Jewish shepherds shows the extent of the final part of that verse where he says, it's great joy that will be for all the people. 
Again, as Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 says, that even those outcasts are going to participate in the salvation of God and the peace and justice that he brings. And so all of these people, even the lowly, even the outcasts will be brought near. Now, this portrayal of uh, God bringing in the lowly and the the focus on uh, the social justice and the work of God to do that is in contrast to Matthew's gospel. Matthew is showing Jesus as the great king, uh, the one that that, uh, fulfills Old Testament prophecy for sure, but the elevated and high Messiah, the king of the Jews. And so in Matthew's gospel, we see magi from afar. We see these rulers, these leaders, we call them wise men, depending on how we translate that. They're coming from afar and they're bringing these wonderful, elaborate, uh, pricey gifts to bring to Jesus. And Jesus is presented as this wonderful child surrounded by the best elements of society. Whereas in Luke, we're getting Jesus as the, the picture of man. Jesus in his humanity has come forth and, and he's surrounding himself with the very lowliest of humanity, with the very common person. Even the shepherds, the farthest out in the field, are invited in to see the birth of this child. The great king who is born, but the king who is accessible to all classes of people. No one is excluded from this. So this is a message for all people, just as the angel says, I'm bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is not just for the religious elite. It's not just for the rich. It's not just for those in positions of power and authority. It's for every single person. Everybody, regardless of social circumstance, regardless of finances, regardless of power, authority, position, or any of those things, everyone now has access to the king, to the king of kings who's product. who's being found in this young child. And so uh, he's including all of the people here, all of the nations that are outside of Israel as well, all nations. And this would have hearkened us back to the uh, the Abrahamic covenant that, you know, the promise there through the Abrahamic covenant is that the, uh, there would be a seed of Abraham. There would, you know, God would bless him and, and there would be a, a descendant from the line of Abraham. There would be a king to sit on the throne from the line of David, who's a descendant of Abraham forever. And then lastly, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. So it's through Abraham, through his lineage, through what God is doing in that special people group, that all the nations can be blessed. And here we see that all the people of the worlds can now find good news in this one member of this nation. And so uh, we get to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15 to that Uh, Abrahamic covenant and see God fulfilling it. We talked about that a little bit earlier as we've talked about uh, the Davidic connection between Jesus and um, uh, David himself, the house of David, how Jesus is uh, constantly referred to both in Matthew and here in Luke as the son of David and from the line of David. So it's very important that he fulfills that covenant, but he's the the one that's coming that will bring uh, good news and great joy for all the people there. And so, verse 11, we we get that context of what exactly is this message would be the next question. You're bringing us a good message. It's going to bring joy. It's good news. Uh, It's for everybody. We're all a part of this. We're all excited about this. So, So what exactly is the message? And the message is simply this. There's a child born. And this child is a special child. It's interesting to note the way it starts out in verse 11. The angel says, for unto you is born a child. Unto you is born this day. So it's not unto Israel. 
It's not unto the priesthood. It's not unto uh, the temple visitors. It's not unto a certain, it's to you, to you shepherds out in the field, to you who are not a part of mainstream society, to you who live on the outskirts. It's to you that Jesus is coming. To you who think that you're afar off, the one who is cast away, Jesus is coming to you. And so we could read this and personalize it, for unto you is born. We often think about the death of Jesus being for you. And and we will even say things like, if if Jesus, uh, if you were the only one on earth that needed to be reconciled to God, Christ would still die on the cross for you. He loves you that much. And while that may be true, let's go all the way back here and look at the incarnation of Jesus himself. If If you were the only one on earth that needed salvation, Jesus would incarnate and be born for you. And so the birth is not some generic thing that happens for everybody. It's something that happens for you. The incarnation of the Messiah, the the, the casting off, the setting aside, according to Philippians 2, of the divine nature, not not the ceasing of being divine, but the setting aside of the divine prerogatives and taking on the human nature was for you personally. For you who feel like you're on the outside, for you who are not brought in near by the religious settings, by the social settings, by the economic settings, Jesus came for you. And so it's a personalization of this incredible story. And the angel says that very intentionally, I believe, uh, not just for the shepherds, but for you and I. Jesus came for you. And for unto you, for your sake, given to you is born this day. So now no longer are we talking about promises of things that are going to come. We've been hearing for 2,000 years that there's a Messiah coming. The Messiah will come. He'll you know, even from creation, Genesis 3.15, we call it the proto-evangelion, the, the proto-good news, the first account there of the New Testament of God's salvific plan, that the, uh, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent there. And so uh, we've been looking for a long time at God's promised salvation plan, and now the time has come. This day, in the city of David, a Savior is born to you. The salvation has come. It's not far off, but it's here now. He's born for you on on your behalf. Now, let's see the description here. It says, he's born to you this day in the city of David. So again, the connection with Bethlehem. We saw the city of David earlier in chapter two there is Bethlehem Ephrathah. And so in this specific city, there's born to you a savior. Now, this would have been a recollection. We've got three words describing Jesus here. He's a savior. He's Christ the Lord. Now, these terms would have uh, brought the reader's mind back to Isaiah chapter 9. So, uh, Luke really pulls on Isaiah uh, a lot for Isaiah's descriptions of the Messiah, of the coming promises of God and what God wants to do. So, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, it would have brought this to mind. And this is what he says. He says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So we see that in Zechariah's song, and we see it here a little bit in uh, the account with the shepherds where they're seeing this great light. In verse 3 of Isaiah 9, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. 
good tidings of great joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every, <coughs> excuse me, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And then here it is. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this birth and this announcement from the angels where he says there is a savior who is Christ the Lord. He's Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. It's going to bring the the mind of the Jewish reader back to Isaiah chapter 9 and this promised child who is coming, the promised savior who is coming there. And it This is the only time in the Gospels that we see Jesus called the Savior. I know in John chapter 4, there's a reference to Jesus uh, perhaps being the Savior. Uh, In chapter 1, the word Savior is used there, but it's in reference to God in general. Here, the transition occurs where the identification of God as our Savior becomes clarified in that Jesus is our Savior. And so the mission of Jesus is highlighted throughout the Gospels, even though the term Savior is not necessarily used. We see it used a lot more in the epistles of Paul and Peter. Uh, But the salvific mission of Jesus is throughout the Gospels without that term. So this is one of the few terms where Jesus is called the Savior here in the Gospel. It it is a term, again, the term Savior, that would have been... uh, common and understood by both Jew and Roman. So uniting the audience that Luke is writing here to, he's writing to a a Jewish crowd that uh, would look back to the Old Testament, look back to Isaiah 9, look back to Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 and see a lot of insights uh, of what is happening here with the shepherds and tie it into that section there. But he's also speaking to the Greek and Roman there uh, because in their society, they would have looked again at Caesar being their savior. Augustus was called savior in several places. He was known as the savior of Rome. There are many Greek and Roman gods uh, that were called saviors. Uh, Other people in Roman society, including physicians, uh, various rulers, uh, and, and whatnot were called savior at time because they saved people in various ways. And so the term savior was very common there. Uh, even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament there, this word Savior is used, uh, and, and it's, it's used to talk about God delivering and saving his people throughout the Old Testament. So the concept of a Savior is very common here. And so for the angel to apply the, the concept of Savior to Jesus the Christ would have brought together this picture there. And so it's specifically associated with Jesus for the first time. Jesus came, and he, notice he hasn't gotten his name yet. Uh, as we get up in the next section, we're going to see that his name Jesus means God my salvation. But here we have the first introduction to Jesus as the Savior. Um, it would have been a direct affront, a direct uh, a blow to the Roman view of the emperor as a savior or these other great individuals as saviors and the peace that comes through them. Here we have a greater savior coming that brings a greater lasting peace and justice. And so it would be speaking up uh, Jesus himself. Now we have further identification. Jesus is the savior, but he's also the Christ. He's 
Christ the Lord. Now, the term Christ or Christos is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that was prophesied to be the deliverer of God's people. And so we focus on Jesus being from the line of David, which was essential. We've got to associate uh, him with that position because that was one of the qualifications to be the Messiah. You had to be of the lineage of David. And and so uh, throughout Luke's gospel, he's connecting Jesus with this picture of the Messiah, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And his birth now is the fulfillment of these prophecies of 2,000 years. And so we've got it brought to fruition. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. And he's the Savior. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Now, when we talk about Lord, this gets to be a little bit difficult uh, of, a, of a concept that, that Luke is going to introduce and dwell with later in the gospel. So in Luke chapter 20, we can jump ahead a little bit and, and look at this uh, section a little bit now, and we'll dig into it a lot deeper as we get there. But in Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44, we see... Uh, Jesus giving his identity. So in Luke chapter 20, verse 41, you've got Sadducees asking about resurrection um, and and no one's willing to ask him any more questions after that because Jesus is answering them so well. So in verse 41, Jesus asks the question and Jesus uh, Jesus says to them, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, remember he is Christ the Lord, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? So in other words, you guys know prophecy. You guys know what's expected. You guys know all of this that's coming. How can you say that Christ is the Messiah? How can you say that he's David's son? Because David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus called him Lord. So how is he his son? And the idea behind this is that Jesus is asking an important question. How can the Christ, how can the Messiah be simply a physical lineage of David? Because David himself saw his own son as something greater. And in that society, your son was not your Lord. The authority went from father to son. The son never ruled over the father. And so it was meant to to probe that relationship between Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus as the son of David. If he's merely a physical descendant of David and that was it, then David would have never called him Lord. However, David calls him Lord, and and it's out of Psalm 110. Jesus subscribes Psalm 110 to him, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, uh, sit at my right hand. So David is calling him Lord. And so, as the Lord, he must be something more than a simple physical descendant of David. So, the logical progression of this is that in Psalm 110, David calls Jesus Lord. So, he can't be merely a physical descendant. If he's not just the son of David or the descendant of David, he's something more. He's the Lord of David. And if he's the Lord of David, the next step is that he, he must be something greater. What is greater than David? Well, only God himself in that sense. So he's got to be the son of God. And in the Psalm that's given there, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. And and the distinction is made in that passage between Yahweh or Jehovah and Adonai. So Yahweh, Jehovah is addressing David's Adonai. Uh, God is addressing David's Lord. (laughs) And so the promise from Yahweh to Adonai. This is what Yahweh God says to Adonai, David's Lord. He says, you're going to have this power, this authority, this eminence, this majesty, and that position is reserved for God alone. So the conclusion you should come to is the Messiah is not just from the lineage of David, but the Messiah is God himself because only God uh, would make his enemies his footstool. And so the natural conclusion is that Jesus 
is not just a son of David in a physical sense, but he is God in the flesh, born into the line of David, worthy of this position. And if he's worthy of this position, then he's worthy of your trust and he's worthy of your allegiance. And that's what he's speaking to the Pharisees there as they're doubting his resurrection. They're doubting his, uh, his position. Um, Jesus makes the argument himself for who the Messiah is, that he is the Lord. So we have that Christ, the Lord, presented here in Jesus. Now, after all that said and done, Verse 12 gives a sign. This will be the sign for you, the angel says. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so it proves the faithfulness of the message. He says, go and check this out. And when you see these things, know that what I'm saying is true. So there's no command to go. The command is kind of implied in the statement. Just like with Mary, there was no command for Mary to go and visit Elizabeth, but it was implied there that if you want to see this sign, go check out Elizabeth because she's already with child. And now here for the, uh, for the shepherds, if you want to see the sign, you want to make sure this is right, go check these things out and you'll see it and you'll find it to be true. And so also notice this, that it's not, it's not a sign for you. And in, in the proper translation, it's not just a sign. This is the sign. <laughs> uh, there were other newborn children in Bethlehem at this time, most likely. There's other clothes that are, or other babies wrapped in swaddling cloths. There are other babies that they could have found, but they're going to specifically find one in a manger. And that's unique. That's not a normal thing that you would look for. And so it's not something that you would expect. So for them to find it like that would have been a testimony that there's something different going on here. And it would have been testimony to who he is. And so you're going to find him in this lowly place in a manger. Now, verse 13 and 14, we see the response. We see uh, the angels responding to the message itself. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And so uh, around now this one angel that came to deliver the message with the glory of God, we now have a, a, a whole heavenly host that has appeared. And there's a sudden appearance of them and a sudden praise session breaking forth. And there's greater drama to the scene that's laid out there. And we have here, the, we have the fourth nativity song. And it's a very short one. And it, perhaps it wasn't set to music, but it fits a song. It's got a parallelism that we're going to see that is very poetic and rhythmic and could be easily adapted to music. So we call it a song. But this is what we call the angel's gloria or the adoration of the angels. And uh, uh, we can see the parallels in here that, you know, it's, it, it goes glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we've got glory at the beginning and peace halfway through. So we've got a parallel. The glory of God brings about peace. We've got glory to God in the highest, in heaven, the highest heavens there. And then peace among those who are on earth is the implication. So we've got heaven and earth now contrasted. And then we also have uh, to God, there, there's God that is receiving the glory. And then we've got the peace given to those whom he favors or those with whom he is pleased, those on the earth. And so we see these parallels. God receives glory in the heavens and we, those whom he is pleased with, those who are following him on earth, receive peace. And so there's a parallel thing going on there. Now, real briefly, uh, I just want to mention something about the translation of this. Uh, there is a single word in here that makes a, uh, a small <coughs> but important distinction. Uh, in this song. Uh, the final word of, of verse 14 uh, is the word eudokia. And it can simply mean good pleasure. 
so if you say simply eudokia, you mean good pleasure or goodwill. If we add an S or a sigma in the Greek to the end of that word, it's eudokias. And adding that S means of someone's good pleasure. Now, if we read it the first way, just eudokia with no sigma or no S at the end, the verse would read like this. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And so that's a normal way we see that reading that many would people say, many of our Christmas carols go that way, that God receives glory in the highest and we on earth receive peace and goodwill. Now, possibly true, nothing terribly wrong with that, but to put it in a better rendering that may be more consistent with the whole of scripture, if we add the sigma to the end, as some early manuscripts do, again, there are some debate over which manuscript is proper. Is there a sigma or is there a not at the end? If we read it eudokias, then it would read like this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those or among the men, among those who are of his good pleasure. Peace belongs only to a specific group, only to those who are receiving and are part of the goodwill and pleasure of God. God doesn't extend his goodwill to all men, regardless of their condition, but his goodwill, his pleasure, his enjoyment goes out to those who have found and hidden themselves in Christ, and they're now a part of the pleasure of God. So the distinction talks about who are the recipients of the peace, who are the recipients of God's goodwill. Is it everybody on earth? And in a global sense, we could say that because God has sent forth his son. He's given uh, you know, his son to be peace for us. But the only ones that receive that peace are those who receive the son. And by receiving the son, we're made right with God and we're now found in his pleasure and his will. And so therefore, the second reading seems to be the best that, uh, you know, we could read through that. And, and I believe the ESV translation that I read from here is a good translation that that, uh, that it's on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So if he is pleased with you, you're found in Christ, you're forgiven in Christ, you've accepted his free gift of salvation, you've accepted all of that, you now have the peace of God given to you. If you've not done that, you're not in his good pleasure, you don't have the peace of God, you have the enmity with God, and you're still in your sin and rebellion. So the peace of God does not dwell with you. So something to contemplate as we think through this message of what God brings with the birth of his son. So to wrap this up, verses 15 through 20 kind of ties the story together. We see the response of the shepherds, first of all, that when the angels went away from them back into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so just like the other visitation accounts, there's a response here. Would they respond like Zechariah with a lack of faith or would they respond like Mary with faith? And they choose Mary's route. They choose a response similar to Mary's. They respond immediately. They want to go verify and confirm the message and check it out for themselves. So we're assuming they find proper care for their sheep. Maybe they leave one of the guys behind and go off. And it says that they're going to travel. Let us go over to Bethlehem. So we've got to go out of the hillsides and over into Bethlehem, indicating that they were probably uh, some distance away. They weren't super nearby. And then it says in verse 16, And they went with haste. They hurried over there. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just like it was described. And so, uh, no difference is there. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered or were amazed at what the shepherds had told them. And so, they told them this message, hey, we were out in the field 
angels appeared and this is what they said. We would find this baby lying in a manger and here he is. He is the Savior. He's Christ the Lord. They would have repeated the message of the angels. And all those that heard them, all those that, that, that heard their testimony, Mary herself, and then there would have been others as they went out into the town or that had come to check this out as well. They, they told many people about this and it amazed them. They wondered at what the shepherd had told them. It, it was an amazing thing that they had heard. And so they were astounded that these shepherds would have received a vision, first of all, and that they would have such clarity on the salvific work of God in redeeming his people and the bringing of the Messiah. It would have been a truly tremendous thing for the people to get their minds around that day. And verse 19, Mary, it says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So everybody else was amazed. Everybody else wondered. Everybody was shocked. But Mary was able to sit back and she was able to ponder and mold these things over in her heart. Today, we would say in our mind, she was grasping at the magnitude of what was going on. She had taken all of the revelation of chapter one that she received from the angel, what was told to her and, and the confirmation that she had and seeing John be born and now seeing Jesus be born and now having these shepherds show up. And so we don't see a lot about the development of the faith of Mary. She's a very faithful woman to begin with, but we find her in, in the few times that we see her throughout scripture that she comes to view this child, the one that she's given birth to, as her savior, the one that is worthy of her worship. And so it's a development of the faith of Mary as she's pondering this, what could all of this mean for me? We see that that pondering and mulling over and thinking through these things led her to the conclusion that this is the son of God worthy of my worship. And then lastly, in verse 20, the shepherds returned, went back to their flocks. They returned, however, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So they returned to their daily life. They returned with a greater faith, with a greater confirmation and a greater understanding of what God was doing. God had revealed a special plan to them and God had elevated them and brought meaning to their lives in a special way. And so to wrap this up, we can personalize that and say, you know, to you, the Savior has been born. To you, this message comes that unto you is born this baby, <laughs> this baby who is the Savior. He's Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah. He is God's plan of salvation that those who are far off can be brought near. Those who are in darkness can be given light. And so you're going to find these things. When you search for these things, remember Luke is writing to give us certainty regarding these things. As you search through this, you too will find certainty, confirmation that this is just the way it is, that God has brought his son into the world and it will build your faith and your faith being built and finding things to be true will lead to a glorifying and praising God. And it'll lead to a new purpose, a new meaning, a new value to your life and a new walk to your life. And I believe these shepherds went out and they began to devote themselves to God in a new way, even in their position that they found themselves in. So the challenge for us today is to do that very same thing. As we hear this message, we see God's plan, not just for Israel, not just for others, but for me personally, that unto me is born a Savior, Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Master is here. And I can submit myself to him and be made right with God. And I can have peace to those who are uh, right with God. When I'm in God's good pleasure through his son, I have peace with God and I can have new meaning and purpose in my life. So I pray that you find that today. I pray that you're encouraged by that, that you're finding certainty in the person and the mission and the message of Christ. And 
I want to encourage you guys to keep joining us as here we continue on through the book of Luke. We continue on with some special interviews and, and so on. Uh, that as we dig into scripture, I pray that you're blessed. Like the channel, please, and, and, and get notifications when new stuff comes out. Uh, go to our Facebook page. Go to our YouTube. We've got additional uh, studies up there. And share it with a friend that needs to hear this. Some others need encouragement today. They need to know that Christ loves them. So... Um, Send us a message if you've, if you've got any questions or any suggestions. Love to hear from you. And, and other than that, we'll see you next time here on Mathetai as we continue through the Gospel of Luke.